following is a teaching from Irving Bible Church. For more information on how you can join us on a Sunday or take your next step, visit irvingbible.org. As Tiffany mentioned, we have an ambitious goal of blessing uh, our neighbors with Thanksgiving bags this year. So that means we need your help. So as she said, you can go to irvingbible.org slash serve local, find the list, find ways you can give. We need everybody to participate so we can really have an impact. As Kyla said, an opportunity for us to be the hands and feet of Jesus to some of our neighbors uh, by providing them a meal for Thanksgiving as an expression of our gratitude for all that God has provided for us, an opportunity for us to be a blessing to those around us. So glad that you're here or that you're joining us online this morning. If you have your Bible, grab it. We're gonna be in Revelation chapter three this morning. Revelation chapter three. I was reminded this week of one of the most frightening moments of my life. I was uh, in my early 20s and had the opportunity to travel with some friends out to Colorado to go rafting on the Arkansas River to, to raft through the Royal Gorge. And, and the Royal Gorge is one of the most intense, one of the most demanding, one of the most technical stretches of river that you can do with a commercial guide. And so we were there. This was actually my second time to raft the Royal Gorge. It was an amazing trip, but we had made it through most all of the treacherous waters of the gorge. We had one final class four rapid ahead of us, a rapid called Corner Pocket. Corner Pocket is created at a place where the river makes a pretty sharp turn coming out of the gorge. And right there in the middle, there's this massive boulder. And so you got rapids on each side of the boulder. The whole idea is when you come through this corner, you've got to decide which side of that boulder are you going but conditions change day in and day out. And so the guide has to eye it as we're approaching at a rapid speed. Which side of the boulder are we gonna shoot for? But the last thing that you wanna do is come right up against that boulder. And guess what? As we're approaching the boulder, we are coming right up to it, right alongside, gonna, gonna hit our side. And the thing is, the reason that you fear the boulder is that if your boat hits it sideways like that, the force of the water is just gonna cause that boat to go up and flip over. And so there's a maneuver that you do when you're coming up against a boulder like that that's called the high side. The, the guy will yell out high side and everybody on that side of the boat away from the boulder will lunge across the boat to add their weight to the side that's hitting the boulder so as to balance it out and hopefully keep from flipping. Well, we came, across, came up upon that boulder and the guide yelled high side. I was on the side that hit the boulder and the guide yelled high side. All my friends lunged across towards me, but instead of going up, the, the boat did what is very unexpected, which was buckle, which meant I, who was sitting on the side of the boat, went backwards and into the water along with my roommate, the two of us thrown from the boat. Now I gotta tell you, the most frightening moment wasn't when I got thrown into the water. The most frightening moment was when I tried to emerge from the water to get a breath, only to discover I was underneath the boat. The boat that hadn't flipped over and so people still sitting on the boat, there was no way I could push up enough to get a gasp of air. I was floating along at a high rate of speed with the water just swirling around me and the only way that I had hope of getting air was to get out from under. I had to force myself deeper down in hopes that I might come out one side or the other, 
But in that disoriented moment, not sure how the boat was positioned in front of me, not sure which way to go to try to get out from under the boat. And the only way to get out from under was to force myself to go deeper down. I wanna pause the story right there and just say, I wonder if anybody's ever been through a moment in life or maybe a, a season in life that felt a little bit like that. Right? A, a moment in life where you feel anxious and afraid. A moment where it feels like the circumstances are just swirling around you and you are doing the very best you can just to try to get your mouth above the water. I wonder if anybody's been there. I wonder if maybe this morning anybody's there right now. This morning, we're gonna look at a message of Jesus to the church at Philadelphia. And Jesus, in this passage, speaks to a church that is weak, exhausted, anxious, and afraid. And Jesus has good news for the weak, the exhausted, the anxious, and afraid. And I wonder, I just wonder if anybody here is glad to know that Jesus has good news for the weak, the exhausted, the anxious, and afraid. Look with me, if you will, at this message of Jesus to the church of Philadelphia in Revelation chapter three, beginning in verse seven. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia writes, these are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. I know your deeds. See, I've placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know that you have little strength, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Jesus here is speaking to the church in Philadelphia. We are in this series called This Beautiful Mess, looking at these messages from the risen Jesus to these churches scattered around ancient Asia Minor. And we come this week to the city of Philadelphia. So this isn't the Philadelphia that you know, right? This is the good Philadelphia, not the bad Philadelphia. That was for Brian Eck and a few of our other uh, Eagles fans. So sorry, Cowboys fans, we gotta give you a hard time every now and again. This is, this is Philadelphia in Turkey, the city of brotherly love in ancient Turkey. It's about 25 miles from Sardis. It's up on a, a plateau area. And one of the things you need to know, even to make sense of part of what's going on in this passage, is that in the year 17 AD, so not that long before this message from Jesus, the city had suffered a devastating earthquake. Right, that, that the city was in large part decimated and they had spent years having to rebuild their city. They kind of lived as a city through this sort of low-level simmering anxiety in the wake of the devastating events that they had lived through. And it strikes me that over the course of the last few years, we've been living through a kind of low-level simmering anxiety in addition to all of the other circumstances that each one of us faces. And they were living through that experience and Jesus writes to them to offer them words of encouragement. You, you see, this is one of only two churches in these seven messages that, that don't get any words of challenge, don't get any words of rebuke. They just get words of encouragement. And I love the way that Jesus says it to them. He says there in, in, in verse eight, I know 
that you have little strength. I know that you feel weak, exhausted, anxious, and afraid. And he writes this message to offer them encouragement. You know, I was thinking about it. What is it that we look for in people that are really able to encourage us, right? When we're going through those difficult times in our lives, when the waters are sort of swirling around us, what is it that makes the words of another person really bear weight in our lives in terms of encouragement? And it seems to me that 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 is when that person that's speaking encouragement into us is somebody who really sees us, right? Whatever it is that we're going through, that there's a sense in which they really see us. There's a sense in which they can relate to what we're going through. And there's a sense in which they can offer a perspective that perhaps in the moment, we can't see ourselves, Right? Isn't, isn't that true when it comes to people being able to really encourage us? That, it, that sometimes it's, it's that, that sense of like, I feel so seen right now. You really see me. And, and you can relate to what it is I'm going through. And maybe you can offer me some perspective that in the midst of the circumstance, I can't see myself. That's what Jesus does for the church in Philadelphia. And friends, I think that's what Jesus wants to do for you and for me. Jesus really does see you, whatever it is that you're going through. Jesus can relate to what you're experiencing. And Jesus wants to offer you some perspective that maybe, just maybe, you can't see in the midst of your circumstances. And to do this, he he says to them, back in verse seven, these are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut. What he shuts, no one can open. Jesus reminds him, I am the holy one speaking to you. I am the true one. I am the one who holds the keys of David. And when he makes this reference to the keys of David and opening and closing doors, he's actually referring back to a passage from the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah 22, verse 22, the prophet says, I will place on his shoulders the keys to the house of David. And what he opens, no one can shut. And what he shuts, no one can open. This allusion back to Isaiah's prophecy that is directed towards the people of God in experiencing exile, offering them a word of hope for this Davidic representative who would be able to provide for them, to be able to open doors for them and to close doors. And you think about that, right? What does opening door represent? It represents access. What does closed door represent? It represents protection. I will give you access that no one else can give you. I will protect you in a way that no one else can. You ever had one of those experiences that, that uh, being with somebody opened some doors for you, right? B- being with somebody gave you some access that maybe otherwise you wouldn't have had. Uh, a few years back, Kim and I had the chance to uh, go to a, a Mavericks game. We got invited to this Mavericks game and, and we didn't just get invited to go to the Mavericks game. We got invited into to one of the really nice suites and man, there was some access that we got in that suite that otherwise we wouldn't have had. And while we were in that suite, we got the chance to meet and be with, spend time with in that suite, the CEO of the Dallas Mavericks. She's an incredible, godly Christian woman uh, leading that organization as CEO. And, and uh, so we got the chance to spend some time with her. She hung out with us in that suite. And let me tell you, when you're at a Mavericks game with the CEO of the Dallas Mavericks, you get some access that you wouldn't otherwise get, right? That opens some doors that might not otherwise be open to you. And that's what Jesus is saying to the church in Philadelphia saying, 
you're with me. I gotcha. And I'm gonna open some doors that, that nobody can shut. And I'm gonna shut some doors that nobody's gonna open. I'm gonna give you some access that you couldn't otherwise have. And I'm gonna protect you in a way that nobody can get to you. Jesus, I, you're with me. I've got you. And I am opening the doors to the throne room of heaven for you. And this would have been deeply meaningful for the people in the city of Philadelphia because these were people who were literally having doors shut in their face, right? Many of these that were part of this early church in Philadelphia had grown up in the Jewish synagogue. And at some point they had met Jesus, recognized Jesus as Israel's true Messiah. And when they did, when they converted to Christianity, that they found themselves literally having people slam the doors in their face. They didn't have access to, to privilege and to power in the city, but they also didn't have access even to, to families and to, to friends and to the synagogue, right? They were closed out from all of the things that they had long held dear. Family that shut the door. The synagogue shut the door. Friends that shut the door. It makes me think of my friend Josh. I recently reconnected with an old friend named Josh who grew up in a different faith tradition than our own. And he grew up in a family that was deeply rooted in that faith tradition. He grew up and got married to a woman who also was from that same faith tradition. They had a son together. And then Josh met Jesus. The old-fashioned way we used to say, Josh got radically saved. And everybody closed him out. He was disowned by his family. He um, lost a job. His wife divorced him and did everything that she could to try to keep him from their son. His conversion to Christ cost him everything that he held near and dear except Christ himself. And that's what these people are going through. They are literally having doors closed and Jesus says, you're with me. I've got you and I'm going to open doors that no one can shut and I'm going to shut doors that no one can open. I've got you. You're with me. This allusion to their being excluded from the synagogue is then addressed in the next verse in verse nine. Jesus, I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan who claim to be Jews, though they are not, but are liars. I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. Jesus is just pointing out the reality that some of what they are experiencing in terms of opposition and even persecution is coming from the synagogue. These who are part of their family, these are part of their faith community that, that now have excluded them and have shut the door. And, and that not only that, but they're actually pointing to the Roman authority saying, they're not us, that's them, not us. And so some of what they were experiencing even under the thumb of the empire was due to the fact that their friends and family were pointing to them, saying they're not us. Now, it's really important that we point out, we've seen this little phrase, synagogue of Satan, twice, to refer to Jewish opposition that these early Christians were experiencing. It's really important that we address the fact that tragically, this little phrase has been pulled out of this passage and weaponized throughout the history of the church. That tragically, a, a, a phrase like this, a verse like this, has been used throughout the church's history to justify anti-Semitism. 
And there's nothing in this passage and nothing in all the Bible that justifies a Christian anti-Semitism. I think our very own Buse Fanning puts this brilliantly in his commentary on Revelation. He says this, he says, no Christian should read Jesus' assurance to the church at Philadelphia about its ethnic Jewish opponents as justification for anti-Jewish animus today. As the whole New Testament makes clear, Gentile Christians have no ground for arrogance or hostility against Jewish people. We should instead honor and value the Jewish background of our Christian faith and be grateful to be included in the circle of blessing that God has brought into the world through Abraham and his ethnic descendants. We should love Jewish people as God loves them. And we should grieve over the harm that Christians have inflicted on Jews over the centuries in the name of Christ and be energetic and gracious in extending the gospel to Jewish people so that they can share in the blessings intended for them first through their Messiah. I think that is remarkably well said. But I think we have here in this verse something of a cautionary tale for us. Right? The Jewish people were working against the church, but in working against the church, they thought they were working for God. Right? And this should be a cautionary tale for us. It's easy for Christians, and I think more and more common for Christians, to find their sense of identity in what they are against. But when we get caught up in what we are against, we can wind up working against God. We, as a church, want to be known for what we are for. Because we are for what God is for. And God is for people. Every person. Every kind of person. God is for people. God is for our neighbors. God is for our city. God is for our world. And we as a church want to be for what God is for. Therefore, we are for our neighbors. We are for our city. We are for our world. And we should take this as a cautionary tale to be known not for what we are against, but to, but to be known for what we are for, to be known for who we are for. Now, Jesus continues then in verse 10. Look with me there, verse 10. Since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come on the whole world to test the inhabitants of the earth. I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one can take your crown. The one who is victorious, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will they leave it. I will write on them the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from God. And I will write on them my new name. Whoever has ears to hear, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Jesus just addresses, you have obeyed my command to endure patiently. That little phrase, endure patiently, it's connected to the Greek word hupomone, which is a, a kind of a picture word. Hupo is the, the preposition for under, and mone, the word for weight. So it literally means to bear up under a weight, to endure patiently. And uh, if there's any more miserable word than endure, surely it's patience, right? Right? I mean, like, I, I don't know about you, I don't particularly enjoy enduring much of anything. But I 
now you're gonna add, not only do I have to endure this Jesus, but I gotta endure it patiently. I mean, come on, right? Anybody with me on this, right? To endure patiently. The patience part doesn't come easy. It doesn't come naturally for any of us. That's why it is in fact a fruit of the spirit to endure patiently, to bear up under a weight. And I think, friends, we just have to recognize that oftentimes we are called to be those who, who keep his command to endure patiently because this is part of God's curriculum for our Christ-likeness. That sometimes that we will go through experiences that we would rather not go through, that we will be asked by God to endure patiently through trials and that God will use those very things in the process of making us more and more like Jesus. Because once you have trusted in Christ, once you have been saved by grace through faith, God's agenda for you now is to make you like his son, to make you like the one who has saved you. And God will use our challenging circumstances as part of that process. We talk from time to time about that very well-known beloved verse in Romans 8, 28, right? Some of you have that one memorized. It's one we reach for when things get tough, right? It offers us encouragement. Romans 8, 28, some of you remember, it says, um, for we know that God works all things together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Now, I love Romans 8, 28. It's a, it's a great verse, but the problem with Romans 8, 28 is it doesn't end there, Right? What comes right after Romans 8.28 is Romans 8.29. And it continues the thought. Paul says, for we know that God works all things together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose for those whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. The good that God works in you and in me in our all things is the good of making us more like Jesus. I think this allows us to, to, to sort of um, turn away from the way we sometimes torture ourselves of trying to figure out the reason for things in our lives, right? What's the reason for this? There's gotta be some reason for this. God's got a reason for this. And we can torture ourselves trying to figure out what his reason is. And I think oftentimes the reason eludes us. We can embrace the reality that while we may never know the reason for something, we can know that God has a purpose in it. Right? We may not know the reason for it, but that we can embrace the purpose in it. And part of the purpose in whatever it is that we are walking through is God's work of making us more like Jesus. I think about um, my dear friend, Brian. Some of you guys know Brian and Shelly, our beloved friends here at IBC. And Brian, over the course of the last number of months, has just gone through it. He's had multiple different uh, health challenges and he has been shuffled from hospital to nursing home to rehab facility and back and forth. And it has just been a long, arduous ordeal with not a clear end in sight. And yet I've watched him endure patiently. I've watched him bear up under a burden. And I know the patiently part hasn't always come easy or natural. And yet Brian has pointed us to Jesus. And so... I want to address my friend. If you're watching, um, we love you and we're for you. We believe in you. We're going to pray for you and you're going to make it through. And thank you for the way in which you've pointed us to Jesus in the way in which you have so patiently endured. And sister, we love you. Those words are for you too. Um, yes. 
Jesus says, you have, you have faithfully, you have endured patiently. And, and he says, so he gives them a word of hope. I'm coming soon. And we kind of go, seriously, Jesus? Right? It's been 2,000 years. <laughs> what is your definition of soon? <laughs> yeah, so, yeah. so here's what I think we have to remember, right? That uh, Peter addresses this. And he says, with the Lord, a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years like a day. And then he says, he is not slow in keeping his promises. Some understand slowness, but he's waiting patiently. The Lord is waiting patiently so that all might come to repentance. All might come to the knowledge of him. So he's waiting on us as we do the work that he's given us to do, to make known this good news of the gospel. But, but this word soon can be translated as, as quickly, right? It's gonna happen quickly. It's gonna happen in a flash. It's gonna happen. But what he's saying is be ready, live ready. And that's the call for us today, 2000 years later is to live ready. He says, I'm coming soon. Hold on, hold on to the one who's holding on to you. And then he uses a metaphor here that I think is really powerful. We don't have time to, to deal with each of these phrases in, in detail, but, but this metaphor, I want you not to miss. He says, and I will make you a pillar in the temple of my God. I'll make you a pillar in the temple of my God. Think about it for a minute. If you were to go right now and visit ruins of an ancient city, um, you could travel to, to this part of the world. You can travel through Turkey. You can travel through ancient Jerusalem, uh, uh, Israel. And if you travel to see a, the ruins of an ancient city, oftentimes what you're gonna see is just rubble, right? Piles up and they'll go, well, this is where a house was, right? And it's like a square of, of rocks. But what, after all these centuries, when you visit that ancient city, what is often still standing? The pillars, Right? After all these centuries, the pillars remain. You see it especially in ancient Ephesus. It's incredible. Um, now think about this. This city in their lifetime, in their memory, had been, experienced a devastating earthquake. The city is decimated. But what likely stood through that earthquake? The pillars. And Jesus starts his message to the church at, F at Philadelphia and says, I know that you're weak, but I will make you pillars. I know that you feel weak, that you feel exhausted, that you feel anxious, that you feel afraid, but I will make you strong. Friends, when we come to God with our weakness, he meets us with his strength. Our problem is that we try to deny our weakness, to hide our weakness, to overcome our weakness, to compensate for our weakness. And none of those strategies ever work fully and finally. We have to come to him with the reality of our weakness. And when we bring to him our weakness, he meets us with his strength. I wanna, I wanna take you back to that river I'm hoping some of you are going, wait, what happened? Um, so the boat buckles, I roll out, I come up underneath the boat, I push myself deeper down and I do come out the side. I emerge and just take a huge gasp of glorious air. Um, and then I know what to do at this point. I, I actually, this is my second time through the gorge and actually this is the second time I've fallen out of the boat. You might not want to go whitewater rafting with me. Um, <laughs> 
So I know what I'm supposed to do is that I just lay back on my back because the life jacket is made in such a way that you're to lay on your back and it'll hold you up. I'm to pick, pick my feet up, put my feet up out of the water in front of me because if I try to stand up, if I try to put my feet down, there's a good chance I'm hitting a rock and it's pulling me under. And there's no way I'm gonna be able to force against that river. Um, so I lay back on my back, I put my feet up out of the water and I float along waiting for someone to rescue me because there's no way that I can rescue myself. You think there's a good preacher analogy in there somewhere? <laughs> but here's the thing, I pop up, I lay back and I look over and I see Brian, my, my roommate, college roommate, best friend since eighth grade, and he is panicking. And uh, I start screaming, get Brian, get Brian, because he's panicking and he is just flailing his arms as hard as he can. He's trying to swim and it's about to kill him because he's trying to save himself and he can't do it. And friends, all of us find ourselves in those times in life where we are exhausted and anxious and afraid, where we are weak and we try to deny our weakness. We try to compensate for our weakness. We try to overcome our weakness. We try to save ourselves and we flail about to no good, to no avail. That when we bring our weakness to God, he meets us with his strength. Holy Spirit, I am weak. You are strong. Be strong in me. So perhaps you're feeling a little bit like life is swirling around you. And you're doing the very best you can just to try to keep your head above the water. Jesus, in this passage, addresses a church that is weak, exhausted, anxious, and afraid. And Jesus has good news for those who are weak, exhausted, anxious, and afraid. He says, I know that you are weak, but I will make you a pillar. We try to deny our weakness, to overcome our weakness, to compensate for our weakness, but Jesus invites us to embrace our weakness, to give him our weakness. And when we give him our weakness, he meets us with his strength. As we come to communion this morning, I want to invite you to join me. I came across a little piece of liturgy this week that I thought just so beautifully spoke to this. It's a contemporary piece of liturgy used by a, 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 a sister church, but I just thought this speaks so powerfully to what we've just been talking about. And so I wanna invite you to, to engage this prayer as we come to communion as a sort of call and response. I will read the portion that you'll see marked as leader and then invite you to respond where it says family. As we come to communion this morning, what right do we have to dine at the table of Jesus? What gives us this right? To all who are weary and need rest, to all who mourn and long for comfort, to all who feel worthless and wonder if God even cares, to all who are weak and frail and desire strength, to all who sin and need a savior, Jesus welcomes into his circle, adopts into his family, and reserves a place at his table. For he is the mighty friend of sinners, the ally to his enemies, the defender of the indefensible, and the justifier 
of those who have no excuse left. Can I just invite you in this moment to bow your head, to close your eyes? I wanna give you a moment to just reflect before the Lord before we come to communion. Maybe for you this morning, it's to, uh, to name a particular area of struggle before him that you need to, to own in his presence this morning. Maybe it is to just bring the reality of your weakness and the difficult circumstances that you're navigating, to bring those before him. Maybe it's just to say thank you for his welcome to his table. Let me give you a moment of reflection. Now, friends, hear once again this beautiful truth. To all who are weary and need rest, to all who mourn and long for comfort, to all who feel worthless and wonder if God even cares, to all who are weak and frail and desire strength, to all who sin and need a savior, Jesus welcomes into his circle, adopts into his family, and reserves a place at his table. Father, we thank you this morning that you have made a place for us. You've made a place for us by extending this welcome through the work of Jesus on our behalf. And so we come with grateful hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this teaching from Irving Bible Church. For more information on how to join us on a Sunday or take your next step, visit irvingbible.org.